Hello and welcome to Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the writer Nikki Gerrard, whose new book is called What Dementia Teaches Us About Love. Nikki, welcome. I'm very pleased to be here. I wanted to start by asking, I mean, the book obviously describes, and its starting point is your own experience of losing your father to dementia. What was it that impelled you in the aftermath of that to say, this, you know, there's something here, this needs to be a book, this isn't a personal experience, there's there's more to it because it's much more than a memoir it's not a it's not simply an account of your own experience it's a sort of investigation you know you're doing journalism here. absolutely it's much more than a memoir and I, I mean, there are lots of wonderful memoirs and I didn't want to write one of those partly because there are so many and partly because my father was a private man and I only wanted to go so far in exposing him as you say my father lived with dementia and then he died of dementia and actually it was his dying it was the last nine months that he spent lying in a hospital bed in a little room downstairs in the family home that made me made me have to think more about dementia and what it means because I mean as I say in the book I always had thoughts that were made of our memories but then what happens when we lose our memories, are we then unmade? And I'd always thought that what I valued most in myself and in other people was kind of autonomy and agency and purpose and self-sufficiency standing on our own ground. But then all these people, like my poor father at the end of his life, when you lose all those quite impregnable qualities, when you become defenceless, are you less of a person? Do you have less value? So during his long dying. I mean, as I say, he lived with dementia for 10 years, and then for nine months, he was dying with dementia. He had kind of gone beyond a life that had value to him. So during those nine months of his dying, and then during like two or three years of running a campaign that asks for more compassionate care for people who have dementia when they go into hospital, I spent a lot of time with people with dementia, with their carers, with doctors and nurses. And those questions about what it is we value, how we care for people who are at our mercy, what makes a person, what gives selfhood, you know, I just needed to kind of unpick them in the act of writing. Yeah, and one of the things you talk about very poignantly and strongly, particularly in the early part of the book, is this idea of invisibility and seeing and being seen. Yes. So in the UK alone, there are more than 850,000 people. I think that's quite an out-of-date figure. More than 850,000 people who are diagnosed with dementia and probably about the same amount again who are undiagnosed. And that number is steadily rising because we're an ageing population. So actually, it's all around us. It's everywhere we look. Almost everybody has some intimate experience of it at some point in their life. One in three or four hospital beds are occupied by people with dementia. One in six of us, if we reach the age of 80, will have dementia. It's everywhere. It's kind of been called the plague of the century. And nevertheless, it's still quite hidden. And people with dementia are missing people. And part that's partly because it happens behind closed doors. It happens in kitchens and in bedrooms. It happens in hospital wards. It happens in residential homes. We kind of shut it away and and we don't see it. And it's partly because it's 
it's such a terrifying illness. It's an illness that kind of unravels the sense of self and it does it very slowly over time. So it has this kind of unique kind of fear. So I think we avoid thinking about it and we avoid seeing it until it comes absolutely knocking because of what it says to us because of what it says to i mean for all sorts i mean because of what it says to us about where we might be headed you know so it's kind of in the same way that we're scared of thinking about decay and about death we're scared of thinking about dementia and we're so scared of having dementia and also i think it brings with it a kind of shame that we haven't properly come to terms with yet I think we're getting better I mean I think that 30 years ago or my father's generation my father was ashamed it wasn't a word that we used in his presence even though he acknowledged that something was dementia wasn't a word dementia was not a word that was used his mother had it it was not a word that was used we there were all sorts of euphemisms but it wasn't kind of faced up to and now I think now my generation people are beginning to say people are saying you know I have this illness, and it's an illness. It's a kind of cognitive impairment that you can find in the brain. And that is much better way of thinking about it because that kind of shame and fear and hiding away behind closed doors and not speaking its name, it turns it into a kind of prison of the self, I think. And you talk about not using the word dementia. You know, it's probably worth defining that because you early on, you describe, I think it's one of the... As a medical specialist, I think he says, I don't like to use the word dementia. No, I know. He's the kind of dementia lead for the whole UK, but yes, he doesn't he like doesn't the word like dementia. Word, exactly. He doesn't like the word dementia. And he, but he says we should use the word dementias. It's plural. So most people think of dementia as Alzheimer's, which is the most common form. And that is typically memory loss over time. So it's gradual and it's about the falling away of memories and the falling away of daily capacity. And that's what my father had. So his first 10 years was a kind of gradual, incremental self-loss. Some dementias are very quick and are much more savage. Some dementias affect your personality. I mean, the brain is so extraordinary. I went and I went to a, an autopsy of brain. I kind of held a brain and I watched it being carved yeah, up. I thought and that I was saw... going above and beyond. That's <laughs> very it was extraordinary because you could actually see in this brain, the man who was doing it could put his scalpel and say, here, there you can see it. You can see it in the brain. And in some, sometimes it's so particular, so viciously particular, so it can alter your spatial recognition it can get rid of words kind of it 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 can get rid of empathy I think that's the worst and the most fearful kind of dementia because the frontal lobe dementia actually by the end it wipes away empathy feeling for other people and imagine being a carer well, someone who has dementia. When, one of when your case person, studies, yes. one of the people you speak to I can't remember their name. Dunn? Tommy, 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 Tommy and Joyce. Tommy and Joyce. Yes. It's a sort of very chilling thing where he sort of he knows that he's lost his empathy yes I mean it was one of the most disturbing interviews I did I spent hours with them and they were very welcoming and they sat together on the sofa and they talked about his dementia and the diagnosis it was terrible it took a long time coming because his symptoms were so atypical and he talked about how he coped with it and his wife talked about how she cared for him and then suddenly like half an hour before the end she started talking about how they no longer were like man and wife because he no longer cared about her. And he was there nodding away and smiling and saying, yes, it's true, I don't I don't care about her. 
I can't. I used to think the sun rose when she did. I think those were his words. And now I don't care. And when I look back at the interview and when I thought back, I suddenly thought, no, they never looked at each other and he never said you to her. He just said she. It was extraordinary and ter- um, terrifying that a life, you know, they've had this good, long, committed, loving relationship. And there she is now, out of love, looking after him, giving up everything in order to look after him. And he doesn't love her anymore. Well, one of the aspects of the book that's, that's really, you know, comes through strongly is that you're, you're talking about the dy- exactly that, the dynamic between the carers and the, the people who are suffering from dementia and this sort of reciprocity. Yeah. You know, I think. Yeah. I mean, is there a way of, do you think, making that easier or making it, it more possible to support carers? I mean, you talk about a, a sort of Russian doll idea that, yeah. you know, if the carer is looking after a person with dementia, they need, they need to be somebody outside. Well. Yes, yeah. yes. So, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that I'm quite uncomfortable I mean, Martin Rosser is uncomfortable with the word, word dementia. I'm quite uncomfortable with the word carer. I mean, a lot of the vocabulary around care makes, makes carers anxious because carer has a kind of selfless, self-sacrificing, saintly and kind of unturbulent quality to it, like, you know, to accompany someone with dementia or the loved one. We always talk about, you know, what do we call, we call them the loved one. And care for someone with dementia... And particularly because the carer is often older themselves, because dementia is a disease that attacks the old largely, and often they have health problems themselves, and they've got this long relationship of they built up a memory bank, they have a reciprocal, largely equal relationship, and then suddenly they're required to give up all that. You know, the memory bank goes; they hold the memories. The person that they love ceases being able to have an equal relationship with them, ceases being able to reciprocate. And if what has what happened with my father is, you know, for the first ten years he could reciprocate. There was a kind of sense, there was an ebb and flow of relationship and there was a way that he could still kind of love people and value them. And by the end he was a body in the bed. And for a wife or a husband or a partner to look after that person and to become just the carer and nothing coming back. That is hideously difficult. And often carers will have very hostile feelings, of course. They'll get irritated, they'll get angry, they'll get resentful, they'll get self-pitying, they'll be at their wit's end, and yet they're supposed to be the carer, the saintly carer. And if I had one sentence of advice for a carer, I would say, just don't do it alone. In whatever way you can find, don't do it alone. Always have time off in a day and in a week which is your time the time where you're kind of caring for yourself reach out for as many you know state pieces of help as you can get and to family and to other friends and say you need help and people are very bad at saying they need help they think it's their duty especially my father's generation that generation people feel that that's the promise they made they've got to do it they can't seek help and that's just unendurable you know I think people endure way more than they should be expected to endure and sometimes they go mad with it well one of the things I mean you you say it seems to be so much of this is about selfhood and that the violence that this does to the sufferer's selfhood but the process also you know unmakes 
yes. the carer's sense of their own. Yes, it. Well, self-hood. I think I think absolutely that's right, and I think that thing of selfhood. I mean, I I grappled with that selflessness throughout you know. selflessness. I mean, I grappled with the idea of what is you know what do we owe the person that we love, and what do we owe ourselves, and how do we how do we accommodate both those things? And for someone like me, thinking about it, you know, here I am, a woman who came of age at a certain time. I absolutely feel I have a right to my own life, to my autonomy, to my own kind of desires, to my own ambitions. But if you become a carer, you have to put all those things on hold. So on the one hand, I believe in kind of love and commitment and responsibility and loyalty and just that act of keeping your promise to the other person. I completely believe in that. On the other hand, I believe that we have to have a life. You know, what is it to be selfless? What, how can we have a relationship if we become selfless? And I don't think there's an answer to that. There's just a continual kind of tightrope that a carer treads between keeping a self and yet keeping faith with the other. Yes, I thou. <laughs> yes, yeah, I thou. <laughs> Looking at, you know, having done this this work, this rather detailed research, do you look back at your experience of helping care for your father and think, I wish there was something I'd done different, now I know what I know? So definitely. And one of, you know, in a way, I started the campaign that I started because I felt so Yes, we're talking about this is it's John's campaign, it's called, yeah? It's called John's campaign, which is seeking to have more compassionate care in hospital because of what's happened to my father in hospital. And because of that experience, I started a campaign which would rescue him. But of course, he was dead. He was beyond rescue. And in a way, I, I wrote this book partly, as I say in it, to kind of make confession and partly because there were things that I didn't know. And I think lots of people begin from zero when somebody has a diagnosis of dementia. And you learn the hard way. (laughs) And it's only at the end that you want to, you know, you know what you should have known at the beginning. So there are various things that I wish I'd known. I I mean, I think we dealt very lovingly with my father. And I think, by and large, we did it between us as a family because we could do it as a family. We did it quite well, but there are various things I'd say. The first thing that I didn't realise is that there comes a stage when it is cruel to try and bring the person with dementia back into the world that they're losing. So for a long time with my father, we kept trying to say, you know, no, that's, that's not right. That's not right. You know, you've forgotten the day. This is the, that person isn't your mother. They're your daughter it isn't breakfast and is that it's distressing midnight because it reminds them of their condition it's distressing because it reminds it's distressing because they have entered a different reality and you're continually telling them that their reality isn't real but for them it is real so i think there's a it's kind of deeply a sense of you have to go into their world which kind of brings us back to the act of care as well because you have to leave your own world behind and go into that world which is a world of different truths i mean a tiny example which is kind of a new selfhood a new selfhood but of course it's not the carer selfhood it's the person with dementia Mm. selfhood so that's complicated i mean a very literal example so there was a time in sweden the last holiday i ever had with my father he came with us to sweden and it was lovely it was before he became very ill and there was one evening where we put him into bed he was in bed and he was ready to go to sleep and sean and i it was like 
midnight. Sean's, Sean's my husband, yeah. We sat down in the kitchen and thought, oh, phew, we're very tired, but we can just have a glass of wine. And it was like 11.30 midnight, we'd have a little snack. And, and then there was a knock at the door, and it was my father, and he got up and got dressed, and he looked very jolly, and he said, I think it's time for supper, don't you? And it was midnight, and he'd already had supper, and we just said, yes, it is. And we sat down, and we lit the candles, and we had a really nice meal together, and then he went back to bed, and we sh- that was right we shouldn't have said no it is midnight go back to bed because for him it was supper time and I wish that I'd realized that sooner you know you have to abandon at some point the attempt to get them back and of course that's a kind of defeat yeah one of the things you talk about John's law no John's campaign is the idea of this hospital visiting hours in particular I mean there seems to be that because isolation is so much a feature of the disease and an aggravator of it so that going into hospital is often what tips people from that living with dementia into dying with dementia thing which is yeah. quite abrupt yeah. how does john's campaign seek to change the experience of going yeah. to hospital so and- the first thing to say is that people with dementia should avoid going into hospital wherever they possibly can because hospital is horribly hazardous for people with dementia there's there's lots of robust evidence now to show that it just can destroy people very very quickly a bit like putting people into solitary confinement that we all need kind of connections we live in a world of relationships but people with dementia are so precarious and it's very easy to cut those kind of links to the world john's campaign has a completely simple single issue pledge really which is to say that the carers of people living with dementia should be able to accompany them when they go into hospital in exactly the same way as parents of sick children and that is all it says it just says that if people with dementia have to leave home then home should be able to follow them in whatever way is possible that carers should be there as their kind of memory and their gatekeeper if you like and it's you know it's still not good to go into hospital but it's infinitely better than going in and just being left in there you know you're frail you're confused you're scared and you're on your own and you look around and there's nothing you recognize and there are people in white coats and machines and and people just go off a cliff yeah. you've you've got lots of advice about how people who are helping, you know, family members, you know, living with people who have dementia and how you care and what we, you know, what works and what doesn't. But obviously one of the bigger questions is institutionally, as a sort of, you know, as a country, as a polity, as a world, are there ways, I mean, obviously, lots, <laughs> lots, lots more money, but what are the ways in which we need to change the institutional setup we have because you know this obviously is a problem as you rightly say it's going to demographically yeah, it's, it's getting d- yeah, bigger absolutely it's so it's a huge it's a huge problem and i'm not a politician or a policymaker so i don't have kind of easy answers yeah, you must I, have know, views I have, on the question, I have huge views on the question so the first thing i would say i mean apart from simple things like hospitals which are now places of cure should be open, the world should be able to flow into it more. Residential homes should also be kind of open to the world more. I mean, but when you say money, money, money and kind of att- and vigilance about it, it seems to me to be a real scandal that what are we, are we still the fifth richest 
economy in the world, something like long. that. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. <laughs> so here we are. We are a very rich country. And yet people are abandoned when they have dementia. So people who have the bad luck to have dementia, it becomes like a problem for the individual to cope with, not a problem for society to cope with. So there should be just a clarion call that people who are at the end of their lives and are frail and are vulnerable and are completely undefended, we just leave them to lie in a hospital bed, to lie in a kind of home with a carer who can't possibly care for them and there's very little support I mean there's a little bit of money there's very little money for carers and there's it just it it's feels, £1.60 an hour or something it is mentioned. a scandal it, no it's something like that it is it seems such a cruel thing and the thing is so if, it, if, if somebody has cancer they get much more support dementia is a terminal illness it seems to be that you think the pathology of it itself, though, is kind of misunderstood, and you know, we haven't because it falls between different stools yeah. because it's a physical illness. Yeah. It has to do with language and social relationship. Is there a more, I hate to use the word holistic because you sound like one of those terrible self help books, but is there a more in the round way do you think we can or should understand it? I mean, are there doctors who said there is a different way to treat this and deal with it? Well, I don't think there are any easy answers to it. I mean, dementias, dementias, dementias are. Yes are a kind of profound cognitive impairment and each individual will have a different way of progressing through that terrible illness. You have a diagnosis, often people get a diagnosis much too late and then you do not cross a line into a new terrible life. You just have a diagnosis and there should be lots of support to help you deal with this diagnosis. There are things that are being done now which seem so wonderful and they should just be rolled out. I mean, we should be more attentive to it. We should see it around us more. There should be... People should have prescriptions for creative activities, for instance, because it's all about remaining connected to the world for as long as you possibly can. When I was researching this book, I did lots of things like... I danced with people with dementia and I painted with them and I sang with them and and did all these activities which are kind of very tangible kind of embodied things and that was wonderful because actually what you realize is that these are people who are living with dementia mostly they're not dying with dementia yet they're living with dementia and they can remain in the kind of flow of the world when I went dancing there was one time I went dancing and the woman I was dancing with was a spectacularly good dancer she was she couldn't really communicate verbally but she could communicate with her body on the floor with music running through her and she was teaching me how to dance and I think we should bear in mind that people with dementia still have value it's also there's these sort of deep groove neurological pathways yes. that you can remember the hymns yeah, you were no, singing when oh you were no, a child or the, absolutely yeah. I mean there's some extraordinary examples. there's a little film called Alive Inside which shows how people when they're plugged into music that they've loved in their life they pretty much literally come alive. So people can be sitting slumped in a wheelchair, drooling, looking as if they are almost dead, and they hear music and their heads lift up. They begin dancing in their chair, pretty much. And it's quite. My, I saw it with my father. I remember almost the last time I spent with my father, a few weeks before he died, my children and myself and Sean, we stood round his bed and we recited... John Maysfield's 
I must go down to the seas again, sea fever, because he used to read it a lot to us when we were children. He knew it well and he loved the sea. And it's a poem about dying, of course, but that wasn't the point. And he had no words left at that point. He was lying in his bed and you would think he had no way of communicating with the outside world. But with this poem, he joined in. He joined in and he knew the ends of lines and he was smiling. And it was like we'd found a way into that kind of demolished self. That, And that's terrifying as well, that he was there somewhere inside himself. Terrifying mm. and comforting equally. That suggests you can, you can get at them still. You can, he's, he's. yeah. Um, one of the most fascinating case studies you had, I thought, was this guy, chap William Utemoen. Yes, am I pronouncing yeah, him yeah, right? That's he's right. An artist. Can you talk a little bit, bit about him? Because like, so many of the accounts of dementia that we have are, as it were, exterior. You know, yes. they are the person over there who occasionally yes. has a bright flash of memory and then vanishes again, yes. or is in the corner. You know. Yes, but- and they ha- and they are, they're inevitably exterior because at a certain point, people can no longer communicate themselves. Their self might be there, but they have no sense of it. So their sense of self goes. So their ability to kind of show it to the world goes. So William Utermolen was a German American artist who was living in London, and he had early onset dementia. Um, I think he was diagnosed in his very early 60s, but probably had it for a few years, so horribly early. And when he first understood that he had dementia, he stopped painting altogether and became acutely lonely and depressed. And then during one stay in hospital, this very wonderful nurse encouraged him to start painting again. And what he did is he painted an astonishing series of self-portraits starting very realistic kind of beautifully realistic he was a realistic painter and then just he he charted his own decline over many years like five or six years he drew himself and in those paintings he's gradually disappearing so everything becomes destabilized kind of perspectives tip his face becomes more and more a sketch of us, a suggestion of his face but completely recognisable so they're very skilled works of art still and so they're both showing dementia and they're inside dementia simultaneously and I think there's nothing else that I've seen that's like that I I never met him but I know his wife, I went and met his widow Patricia who's an art historian and I've talked to her a lot about it and she was the, everyone I interviewed I said to them, when did you feel you lost the person that you loved? And I had expected people to have different stages of that. And everybody said when they died. Nobody said, you know, when they were this stage of dementia or that. Everybody said when they died, which surprised me, except for Patricia. And she said about William Utamolan when he laid down his brush and could no longer paint anymore. And you do talk about that, the loss when they died, but also there is a sense of restoration. Yes. In your final chapter, you talk yes. about how... Yeah, and actually, if this book is sad... Which and it scary, is. <laughs> ..and scary, it's also... I don't want it to be depressing. You know, the narrative is a narrative of self-loss, but also it's about joy and hope and courage in the face of this and ways forward and one of the things that lots of people have talked about and I have felt myself is that dementia very savagely unravels a self in many cases and death 
is a relief. Death often comes too late. There is a way in which science has outstripped psychology, so people live far beyond when they should live. Life is completed long before the person dies, and it can take quite a long time for that ending not to define the life that went before it. So I think for a lot of people who lose somebody with dementia, for a long time they're just haunted about those terrible, sad last months. But then bit by bit, the person returns and you remember all the selves they ever were. And that's, that's a blessing. Thank you. I think we'll leave it there. Nikki Gerard, thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed that book's podcast. If you did, I very much hope that you'll subscribe to us on your podcast provider and if you liked it especially if you liked it please rate and review it very favorably indeed we also have a special offer we can provide a 20 pound john lewis voucher if you subscribe to 12 issues of the magazine for just 12 pounds so that's practically an eight pound bribe to read the wonderful spectator for 12 weeks running and you just need to go to spectator co uk forward slash voucher <laughs>